Hello everyone, welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Today is Wednesday, November 23rd. Amanda Borchel Dan here with our military correspondent Emmanuel Fabian, Palestinian affairs correspondent Jack Mukand, and from Doha, news correspondent Ash Obel. For Jacob and Ash, this is their first appearance on the podcast, so welcome and hello. Hi Amanda, good morning. We have a lot to cover, including a double bombing in Jerusalem, a kidnapped corpse, a ghastly murder, and for a palate cleansing closer, briefings from the World Cup. But first, a short break. The Technion Israel Institute of Technology is where some of Israel's brightest minds ask the biggest question of all. What if? What if they could take on the world's biggest challenges? What if they could develop life-changing, environmental, scientific, health, medical, and technological discoveries that will make a huge impact on Israel and the planet? But they don't just ask the question, they answer it too. They turn those ideas into reality. They make them happen. To see just some of the incredible things they've achieved, get the Technion Booklet of Wonders at ats.org slash wonders. We hope it inspires you to give them your support so they can keep doing what they do best. The American Technion Society. World-changing discoveries by Israel's brightest minds made possible by you. And we're back. Listeners, we are recording on Wednesday morning and more facts are being gathered as we speak. But Manny, tell us what we do know now and what we suspect about the two bombings that hit the capital this morning. So this morning, uh, shortly after 7 a.m., um, an explosion occurred at a bus stop uh, near the main entrance to Jerusalem in uh, Givat Shaul. Uh, at least 12 people were injured there. Uh, one person who was critically wounded in the bombing later died. Um, and then half an hour later at the Ramot Junction, it's a, not very far away from there, another entrance to Jerusalem, a second bombing occurred and that injured another three people. So uh, as it stands right now, police uh, are calling this a terror bombing attack or two separate terror bombing attacks. It is unclear if it was um, one attacker or two attackers and the suspicion is currently that a uh, explosive device or devices were left at the two locations uh, and then they exploded. Uh, police are searching uh, throughout the city for other potential um, devices and, of course, for the attacker or attackers in this case. And uh, this is a, a quite a rare occurrence. The, the last such bombing, uh, I believe, at a bus stop was in 2011 uh, in Jerusalem. Uh, and in 2016, there was also a bombing uh, claimed by Hamas uh, on a bus in Jerusalem. Manny, did this catch everyone by surprise? Were there any kind of warning signs that this was meant to happen or suspected to be in the works? This uh, attack definitely comes at a period of heightened tensions. Uh, in recent months, we've seen uh, numerous uh, attacks, uh, including in Jerusalem. However, those have mostly been um, stabbings, uh, some shootings, there have been several uh, car ramming attacks in the West Bank as well recently. Uh, and since the beginning of the year, 29 people, now 30 people have been killed uh, in uh, Palestinian terror attacks. At the same time, the army has ramped up a lot of operations in the West Bank, uh, arresting more than 2,000 people since the beginning of the year. 
and at least 130 Palestinians have been killed, uh, committing attacks, clashing with security forces, and then other incidents uh, since the beginning of the year. So definitely it comes at a period of heightened tensions, but I don't believe police were um, or security forces were um, preparing for a, a bombing attack. This is something we haven't seen in, in quite a while. Last night, we sent out an alert of involving the heartbreaking case of Tiran Ferro, who is an 18-year-old 12th grader from the Druze majority town of Daliat al Carmel. He was critically injured in a car crash in the West Bank and treated at a Palestinian hospital where he died. Then what happened, Manny? So Tiran was was uh, injured in this car crash uh, with his friend. It's- because of his critical injuries, he had to be taken to a hospital in Janine while his friend was taken by the army uh, to a hospital in Israel. Uh, at some point, um, he died at the hospital, in the Ibn Sina hospital in Janine, and Palestinian gunmen came into the hospital and snatched his body. According to reports, they believed he was an Israeli soldier. Uh, he was not a soldier, he was a 12th grader. And uh, his body is believed to currently be held by a Palestinian government in the Janine refugee camp. Uh, Israel has been working with the Palestinian Authority to attempt to retrieve his body. Uh, As of Wednesday morning, uh, that has not been successful. Um, And in response, Israel has uh, shuttered two main uh, crossings in the Janine area. So that will prevent um, Palestinians who work in Israel from entering Israel and Israeli Arabs who wish to visit the Janine area from uh, going to the area. So this should take some sort of economic toll on Janine. But meanwhile, uh, security forces are working around the clock to come to some agreement uh, with the Palestinian Authority to get this body uh, out uh, to be buried um, by his family. Okay, Manny, thanks for both of these updates. I know you have a lot to do, so we'll say goodbye now. Thank you. Jack, turning to you, welcome to the podcast. Good morning, Amanda. You wrote a very in-depth feature on the murder of Ahmad Abu Marhia, who is a gay Palestinian who sought refuge in Israel, only to be kidnapped and murdered in Hebron. In Hebron, First of all, tell us what was life like for him before he escaped across the Green Line? Well, I was able to speak with a lot of friends of Ahmad who knew him during his time in Israel, and he had a very difficult life. They all stressed that he never liked to see himself as a victim, and he didn't like to rake over the past, but he had difficulties both in the West Bank and in Israel once he escaped. Something that listeners need to understand about the context in the West Bank is that it's a society where homophobia, unfortunately, is rampant. According to a 2019 Arab Barometer poll, 95% of Palestinians in the West Bank believe that homosexuality is something that society should not accept. And what this translates into on the ground for LGBT individuals oftentimes is violence at the hands of family, uh, at the hands of neighbors. And um, that can mean anything from beatings to murder attempts. There's one testimony I read about a man who escaped Israel his family found out that he was gay and they immediately locked him in his room and he heard from behind the door his family discussing the best way to kill him. So he escaped out the window and went to Israel. So in Abu Mahia's case, he faced beatings on a regular basis from his family. He tried to escape to Ramallah, but his family tracked him down. And finally, he decided to escape um, to Israel. And there are about 90 to 100 LGBT Palestinians who escaped 
discrimination and violence in the West Bank and Israel. So he was part of a small community of mostly men um, and some trans women. And he most likely escaped through a breach in the security barrier. And once he got here, the, he, he had a very difficult time. And one of the reasons for that is that Israel, up until June, up until the law was changed, thanks largely to the efforts of Labour MK, Ibtisam Mar'ana, they were not allowed to work. They were allowed to live here on a temporary basis. But deprived of work opportunities, they often fell into sex work. And that could either mean selling one's body on the street in a red light district, or it could mean an exploitative relationship in which a sponsor gives them food, shelter, their needs. There seems to have been some improvement since the law was changed, but it's hard to break down those exploitative ties. Abu Marhia also had a rather precarious uh, employment situation after he had been in sex work for a while. He would go from one restaurant gig to another. On one occasion, he was at a restaurant that had hired someone from his hometown who recognized him and beat him up for being gay. Uh, his living situation was quite precarious. He would go from one shelter to the next. Because these places and LGBT shelters are so limited and so in demand, they have to put time limits. So sometimes his time at one shelter would run out and he wouldn't have another place to go. And those times uh, he would end up homeless. Um, just looking out a little bit further at some of the legal questions involving asylum in Israel that complicated his life, what I heard from lawyers is that the Israeli asylum system is essentially closed off to Palestinians. Um, in general, the Israeli asylum uh, system doesn't accept a lot of the applications. It accepts less than 1%. Anywhere from 10 to 45% is, is normal for um, developed countries. But in the case of Palestinians, uh, Israel has a somewhat idiosyncratic uh, interpretation of a certain clause in the uh, Refugee Convention. I'm not going to get into the specifics. I mentioned it in the article. But Israel's interpretation of that clause regarding Palestinian refugees has basically made the government decide not to open up the asylum system. And, and what that means is that Palestinians are allowed to stay temporarily on the condition that they seek resettlement elsewhere. But resettlement can often be a cumbersome process, especially because a lot of third countries are not willing to resettle an individual who has a criminal record. And it's the case that many of these people have criminal records because they were living on the street. Um, they perhaps needed to steal food in order to survive. In terms of his life in Israel, it was quite complicated. Um, and then at the end of his life, uh, he's brought back to the West Bank. It's unclear if he was kidnapped. Friends swear that he would never have set foot voluntarily back in the West Bank after th everything he suffered there. His family says he was living in Jordan and was actually visiting the West Bank voluntarily, but there's a paper trail that shows that he was living in Israel. Um, so he's brought back to the West Bank. He's killed in an absolutely gruesome way. He's beheaded, uh, and a video of the beheading is uploaded to social media. At the moment, the uh, Palestinian police says they're investigating, but the name of the suspect has not been released, nor have his motives uh been shared with with the public. Jack, thank you so much for that. We'll go to a short break. 
Shalom, dear listeners. This is Daniil Hartman. And I'm Yossi Klein Halevi. Together we host the podcast For Heaven's Sake from the Shalom Hartman Institute. These have been some of the most challenging days for me personally, for Israel, and for the Jewish people. And one of the ways in which I've gotten through this is that I found solace and meaning through discussions with my dear friend and study partner, Daniil Hartman. And I hope that the Times of Israel listeners will join us as we continue to tackle the pressing questions facing the Jewish people here at For Heaven's Sake, which has become the number one Judaism podcast. Well, Daniil, I'd also like to recommend the Identity Crisis podcast hosted by our colleague and friend Yehuda Kurtzer. It's a series of fantastic conversations with leading figures in Jewish life, thought, and culture. Now, for decades, the Hartman Institute has been a preeminent destination for Jewish ideas and learning. Now you can access Hartman Ideas on these chart-topping podcasts at shalomhartman.org forward slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll be privileged to help guide you through these challenging and even unsettling times. I got married this Monday in the middle of a war. You are not a soldier anymore. You are 50 years old. What is the matter with you? It's like a couple of kilometers from here. Like my friend has a 4x4. Let's just go cut across the fields and go get him. Israel Stories Wartime Diaries. Voices that try to capture slivers of life right now. And he told me, take with you a sleeping bag and a tent <laughs> and just go. I texted him on, like after I was told that he was killed. From their eyes, I was a traitor. Everybody needs their like blankie their teddy bear, something to make them feel safe. I'm just another grandfather looking after his grandchild while his son is off at war. These children of Hamas now will be the killer of my children. I desperately wanted to talk about sex during my eulogy for Ido. Everyone has to choose to be optimistic because we don't have room for pessimism. Check out Israel's story wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back with something completely different with Ash, who is joining us from Doha. Now, Ash, you are an observant Jew representing an Israeli paper in Qatar. What kind of response are you getting when you show people your lanyard saying the Times of Israel? And are you walking around with your kippah? So no, I'm not not walking around with a kippah. Uh, this is the first time Qatar allowing Israelis to visit the country. It's not clear to me whether it's against their will or if they're happy to be letting Israelis in. Um, but when there's an international football tournament, that's that's just the reality. You can't block out an entire nation. Um, so I guess it's a case of one step at a time. It's, it's a step that they're allowing uh, Israelis into the country. And um, to be walking around uh, identifiably as a Jew with a kippah or with tzitzit out, I think would be, for me, maybe a little a step too far. So for now, I'm keeping that um, under wraps a little bit. Now, there have been a lot of rumors about kosher food, the availability, lack of availability, and then sudden availability again of kosher food. What have you found yourself? Yeah, it's not clear where those uh, rumors came from. I spoke to the organizers of the kosher food and they they said nothing has changed. There is kosher food, which in the first place was a surprise to me. Um, I guess there's two ways to acquire kosher food. One is just to go to a supermarket. They have a lot of imported goods here, so you can find food imported from America with OU certification. I even found a box of breakfast cereal from my home country, Australia, which I know to be kosher. So that would be the the more traditional way. But there's also um, a few people that have set up um, kosher food using, I think, the Qatar Airways kitchen services here. um, And they're creating kosher bagels and kosher delicacies. 
it is a little bit like um, a drug deal. You have to know what time, in which hotel, in which room, at a certain 15-minute block in order to pick up your your salmon bagel. But um, look, it's a start. At least it's an option. Okay. Now, obviously, you're not there just to chat and eat, but actually chatting is what you are there for. And you have been talking to people that we Israeli reporters generally don't get to meet Iranians. What kind of response have you gotten from Iranians in particular when you show them your Times of Israel tag? So Iranians in particular, I've had a, a very interesting response. Most of them say, they ask what publication I'm from. I say the Times of Israel. They usually give me some sort of expression of, of um, apology, shrugging the shoulders, some sort of frustration on their face. And they, they explain that they want to speak, but they can't, which, which of course I fully understand and respect. And I, I don't push them any further on that. Uh, there was one incident where an Iranian fan outside the stadium before their match with England gave me a little bit of attitude and kind of just turned his back on me and said, we're done and, and walked away. That was the only only time I've sensed any hostility. Everything else has been um, nothing but polite. Now, Iran faced a pretty brutal loss. And I understand that there are rumors that it's a Zionist plot. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, well, Amanda, if your team lost 6-2, you would also be um, scrapping for any excuse you could find. So uh, I think it's a case of that. Um, look, the Iranian football team, which are known as uh, Team Meli in uh, Iranian, in, in Persian, they were under a lot of pressure from Iranians that are, have been protesting for the last few months, uh, as we know. Um, and people wanted to see their football team support the people and support the, the protest movement. And so there was a lot of pressure. Um, and one conservative newspaper in Iran decided that the, that pressure on the team had actually been a, a joint plot between the Zionists and the Saudi Arabians to... Uh, put uh, undue pressure on the Iranian national football team. And if that's true, then it, it worked. They lost uh, lost 6-2. Now, Ash, what do you expect moving forward? What kind of coverage can we expect from you? I'm hoping to spend some time later today in the um, outer suburbs of Doha. The center of the city is very glitzy and glamorous, uh, you know, tall towers and uh, nice cars. You step out into the suburbs and it's entirely a migrant population. You see no um, Qatari people, very few football fans. So I'm interested to see um, and speak to some people about what life's like out in the suburbs. And I'll also be speaking to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, who have set up a quasi-embassy to look after the uh, reported 30,000 Israeli fans that are going to visit Qatar during the World Cup. So I'm, I'm interested to speak to them and find out how it's been to be a Israeli diplomat in Qatar for the first time. And it should be mentioned that obviously these Israeli fans are both Israeli Jews and Arabs, right? And so yep. I would imagine that their experiences in Doha are slightly different. Could you, do you have a window into that? Yes, I spoke to someone who was on the first direct flight from Tel Aviv to Doha. They said it was 50-50 between Palestinian Arabs and Israeli Jews. And I will say I've noticed a lot of Palestinian flags. I guess it makes sense, um, given that we are in uh, uh, the Gulf here. But at um, football matches last night, I was at Australia, France, and everywhere you looked were Palestinian flags um, in the stands. I will say, though, that I, I was lucky enough to be at the World Cup in 2018 in Russia. And uh, also over there, there were many, many Palestinian flags. You know, the World Cup is a time of, I would say, heightened nationalism. And um, there are many Arab fans here, maybe many Palestinian refugees in, in other Arab countries that are here. Um, so you do see a lot of um, Palestinian representation here. And are you seeing any Israeli flags at all? Absolutely none. Um, most international tournaments you do see, if you, if you look carefully, some of the biggest moments in World Cup history, at least in my lifetime, you'll see uh, an Israeli flag in the crowd somewhere. But uh, on this occasion, uh, for obvious reasons, there are absolutely none. In fact, I'll go even further. 
I've barely seen any Israelis on the street. So they were warned before the tournament by the by in an advertising campaign by the foreign foreign ministry to keep their Israeliness low key, which as we know can be very difficult for Israelis. But uh, I've barely heard any Hebrew, barely seen any Israelis um, except for a handful on the street, and they were all keeping a, a fairly low profile. And final question for you. I understand that no alcohol is being served, which must make for a slightly different in atmosphere during a football tournament. What, what are you seeing? It's not it's not strictly true. There is alcohol. Um, if you go to the FIFA fan park, certain hotels, pe- people know, again, it's similar to what I said earlier. It's a little bit like a drug deal. You have to know where and what time. Uh, you also have to have the money. It's not not so cheap to, to find beer here. I would say it has it has an impact on the atmosphere in the stadiums. I can compare to Russia in 2018, where the beer flowed much more freely and the vodka, of course. And the atmosphere was maybe a little bit more rowdy in Russia. It seems a lot more, I would say, tame in Qatar, for better or for worse. All right, Ash, thank you. And safe travels home. Thank you. Thank you, Jack, as well. Bye, Amanda. Thanks for listening to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. And thanks to our producer, Gilad Brownstein, and to Gili Amar for this out-of-this-world music. You can find us daily wherever you find your podcasts. And on our mothership, timesofisrael.com. Like what you hear? Consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to spread the word. And be sure to check out our weekly feature, Times Will Tell, released every Friday. Until next time, Shalom. Shalom.